Uh, you should be getting a handout tonight. We may not even get to the screen, depending on what happens. Now, this is a, a handout that I gave many moons ago. I made this when I was a younger man. Uh, but we're going to use this tonight as a framework for our study. But before we do that, I do need to do a smile check. We're smiling. Praise God. Yes. Smiles. Yes. Smiling. Yes. Yes. Smiling. Smiling. Yes. Praise God. Praise God. Smiling. All right. I see the smile. Smiles. Yes. I'm glad you guys made it. Glad you made it. You know, my friends, today has been one of the hardest days of my Christian experience. And sometimes when you preach something about having peace in the midst of a storm, you try to hold on to that reality, you know? And sometimes it's hard to hold on to that reality when what you thought was isn't, <laughs> and what you think is, you know, it's just interesting. So today has been fairly difficult. But because I, I find myself here in church, there was a peace that came over me when I walked in the sanctuary. And it's because I know that I'm in the place I'm supposed to be. If you don't mind, let's just bow our heads for a few moments of prayer. Ask God for his Holy Spirit to be our teacher. Our Father in heaven, you know the frailness of each of us. Uh, there is nothing hid from you. Lord, as we're about to open the Bible, we need your help. We ask for the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is the only effectual teacher of truth. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, claiming the merits of his blood. Amen. So it is the same, even though I gave you a different title than what's on the, the paper outside, it is the actual same subject matter. What I realize, though, is that this is a Thursday night, which means that some of you have to work tomorrow, so I cannot keep you for a very long time. But we're going to study. I want you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, we're going to read Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11, and we're going to start reading at verse number one, and I want you to put your spiritual minds on as we begin to investigate the scriptures. Revelation chapter 11, and we're going to begin reading at verse number one. It says, and there was given me a reed like unto a rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God. What is he measuring, my friends? The temple of God. Rise and measure the temple of God. And the altar, and them that worship therein. Hmm. Verse 2. But the court which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not. For it is given unto the Gentiles... And the holy city shall they tread underfoot, how long, my friends? 42 months. So this book, the book of Revelation, is full of imagery. 
And we're going to take our time, but move rapidly through our study this evening, because there is some great import here that I want to share with you. And I think this is my last sheet of paper. Now, we talked the other day about time. And we say it, a day in Bible prophecy equals what? A year. A day in Bible prophecy equals a year. So we have 42 months. And in a Jewish month, they went by a lunar calendar, 42 months, 30 days in a month, comes out with 1,260 days. A day equals a year. So this 1,260 days equals 1,260 years. So right now we have a time that is allocated to the time of the Gentiles. Now, the time of the Gentiles, this time frame we talked about the other night, which was Sunday night, we said that this time, 1,260 years, or three and a half times, or 42 months, was the time frame that the Antichrist power would have dominion over the people of God. That's what we said the other night. But in this passage, I want you to see that it says, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot, how many times? 42 months. So what's the holy city? Anybody remember what the holy city is? Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is a symbol of God's people, okay? It is the church. For so 1,260 years, this power would have dominion over the holy city, or we say God's people, okay? Just keep that in mind. We're building a case. We're in class. We're in class. Now, I want you to keep reading with me in verse number four, verse number three. It says this, and we're going to investigate this in thoroughness in a few moments. In verse number three, it says, and I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall, what's it say, my friends? They shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and three score days clotile. In sackcloth. So, mind you now, we have the holy city, which is God's people, that are, per that are persecuted and prosecuted for 1,260 years. But then we also have two witnesses. And what's the job of the witnesses based on the text? What is their job? They are to prophesy. And they are to prophesy in what? What are they prophesying in? Sackcloth. Now, we're going to look at this in detail in a moment. But I want you to think tonight because it's going to be very applicable. So we have the holy city, which is God's people, which are persecuted for 1,260 years. And we have the two witnesses, which we have not identified as yet. But these two witnesses are prophesying in sackcloth. Now, there's something else I want you to see before we begin to delve further. You'll see if you jump down to verse number... I want to jump down to verse number three. We're in three. Verse four. It says, these are the two, what's it say? Well, that's interesting. That's interesting. Because the two witnesses are the two, two olive trees. Okay? So we have two witnesses, two olive trees. They are saying that they're the same thing. These two witnesses prophesy for the same time frame that the holy city is trodden underfoot. 
okay, which is God's people. Now, why is the Bible equating witnesses with the two olive trees? Okay, just keep that in mind. Why, are the, why is the Bible equating two witnesses with two olive trees? Don't worry, we're going to answer in a few moments. Actually, the Bible is going to speak for itself. And then it says, these are the two olive trees and, what does it say? Well, now it gets even more curious, right? So now we have two olive trees, two witnesses, two, two candlesticks. I'm saying well, this is a very interesting puzzle. Huh? Two witnesses, two olive trees, two candlesticks, two witnesses prophesy for 1,260 years, clothed in sackcloth. Let's go a little bit further. And it says, and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any men were, if any men were hurt them, fire proceeded out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. Now notice what these two witnesses have the power to do. These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. And when they shall have finished or in the original language it says finishing, when they are finishing their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. So now that we have a, a general reading of the first seven verses, I want to focus for a few moments on this idea of the bottomless pit. Now, they talked about this this evening about understanding Greek and Hebrew. You do not under, need to understand Greek and Hebrew to get a full understanding of the scripture. You need the Holy Spirit. Amen? What the Lord has done for us, though, he's given us these wonderful tools. As my brother brought out, there's a thing called eSword. There's all these other, these other uh, apps and software that you can use to understand the word. So I was curious about this word bottomless pit. And on the paper that I have given you, the word, the Greek word for bottomless pit is abusos. What's the word I said? Abusos. Yeah, abyss, right? It means the same thing, abusos. Now you take that word, abusos, and in the, in the Greek uh, Old Testament, there's a phrase used in Genesis. Go to Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to read verses 1 and 2. Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. So watch here what the Bible says in Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. The Bible says, In the beginning, God created, what my friends? The heaven and the earth. And the earth was without, what's it say? Form and void. So whenever the Bible uses the word form and void, that word is, in the Greek, abusos. So the same word used for the bombless pit in the book of Revelation is the same word used in the Greek Septuagint to describe the earth being without form and being without structure. It's void. Do you understand the idea? 
Now, in, so what, the way my mind works, the way my mind works, the way the Holy Spirit works in my mind in the Bible is that I look at the original way the word was used, the original way that the Bible interpreted it, and then I say, okay, this gives me a springboard to understand how the book of Revelation is using it, okay? So I'll give you this idea. Let me, let me put it this way. In Genesis chapter 1, the earth was without form and void. What does the Bible say happened after that? There's darkness, and what else? What does it say in the text? Darkness on the face of the deep, and what does it say that God did? The Spirit of God did what? Ah, so watch now. So there is form and void, and God's Spirit begins to hover or move upon the voidness. And as the Spirit of God moves upon the voidness, there is then a creation that begins to take place. Everybody follow the idea? So there is chaos and disorder before the word. Stay with me. There is chaos and disorder before God says, let there be light. Boom. Now the spirit works and let there's light. There's chaos and disorder before the father says, or for the son says, let there be a firmament. Let it be divided from this and that. Let there be grass. Boom. God speaks and now out of this chaos, there is order. Stay with me. You with me? Okay. This is important. So in the book of Revelation, there's a beast that comes out of abusos, the same word, chaos, disorder. You staying with me? All right. Stay with me. Now back to Revelation chapter 11. Now, we, we looked at some, we talked about the time for a few moments, so I don't want to deal with that. I want to deal with this idea of sackcloth. So go with me to the book of Psalms. You have your finger in Revelation, don't lose your spot. Go to Psalms, the 69th division of Psalms, and we're looking at verse 11. Psalm 69. And we're looking at verse 11. And notice what it says. Actually, start at verse 10. Start at verse 10. Verse 10. It says, When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that was to my reproach. I made sackcloth also my garment, and I became a proverb to them. Question, if the person is weeping, chasing himself and fasting, and he puts sackcloth on, is this a rejoicing time or a sorrowful time? Very good. So that's a simple observation. Now go back to Revelation, and you see that these two witnesses are clothed in sackcloth. Is that a happy time or a sad time? Okay, so for 1,260 years, these two witnesses who are clothed in sorrow are prophesying. Everybody follow that? Everybody with me? All we're doing, we're looking at the text. Let the text speak, okay? Let's go a little bit further. I want you to look with me about these two olive trees. And this is going to be interesting, at least in my opinion. Deuteronomy chapter 6 in verse 11. Deuteronomy chapter 6 
in verse 11. Deuteronomy chapter 6 in verse 11. It says in verse 11, And houses full of all good things, which thou fillest not, and wells digged, which thou diggest not, vineyards and olive trees, which thou plantest not, when thou shalt have eaten and be full. And this is God speaking to Abraham, Isaac, the children of Israel, saying, When you go into the land, these are the things that you will receive, even though you did not effort to have them. Everybody okay with that so far? Okay, let's go a little bit further. Deuteronomy 8, verse 8. And again, this is God's bountiful blessings to his people. Olives are a blessing to God's people. Do you eat olives, my friends? It's, it's, it's good for you. I love green, the green olives from California. You know what I'm talking about? N- not, the, not the ones that taste horrible. I'm talking about the ones that, I'm talking about the ones that taste, not, not the ones with the little pimento stuff in the middle, not that. Yeah, the, yeah they're nice, they're, they're smooth down. Anyway, they're good for digestion, amen. Deuteronomy 8, verse 8. Notice what it says. It says, a land of wheat and barley and vines, and fig trees, and pomegranates, a land of, what's it say, my friends? Olive oil and honey. So in the mind, in the mind of, of God and his children, when they get to this land, olives and olive trees were a blessing. Okay, that's the point I'm making with this. That this is a blessing. So when we say these are the two witnesses and these are the two olive trees, God is indicating that in this is a blessing of sorts, okay? But stay with me, there's still more. Go with me a little bit further. I want to go to 1 Kings. 1 Kings. 1 Kings. Now here's where you're going to have to start thinking. I'm giving you a lot of text. But stay with me. 1 Kings chapter 6. Verse 23. 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 23. Watch this. This is very interesting. It says, And within the oracle, he made two cherubim of, what's it say? Okay, so now we're making a connection. This is interesting. We have two cherubims made out of olive trees or olive wood. Everybody follow? Okay. I want you to jump all the way to verse number, I believe it's verse 32. Let me just check my notes to be sure. Yep, go to verse 32. And notice what the Bible says. Again, very, very interesting. The two doors also were of, what's it say, my friends? olive tree and he carved upon them carvings of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers and overlaid them with gold and spread gold upon the cherubim upon the palm trees all right so we have it again we have this idea of olive trees but these olive trees are now connected with the formation of cherubim Are you with me? Okay. 
Trust me, I'm, 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 I'm setting a trap for you. Amen. Go with me to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 4. And I'm going to start reading at verse number 1. Zechariah chapter 4. And we're starting to read at verse number 1. Notice what the Bible says. And the angel that talked with me again, again, talked with me, came again and waked me as a man that is waked out of his sleep and said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I have looked and behold a candlestick of gold with a bowl on the top of it and his seven lamps thereon and seven pipes to the seven lamps which are upon the top thereof. Verse 3. And two olive trees by it. Everybody got that? There are two olive trees by what? By the candlesticks. One on the right side of the bowl and the other on the left side thereof. So I answered and spake to the angel that talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Now he asked the question, What are these, my Lord? Then there's an answer in verse 6, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. But verse 11 is interesting. Go to verse 11. Then answered I and said unto him, What are these two, what's it say? Olive trees on the right side of the candlestick and on the left side thereof. And again I answered, and I answered again and said unto him, What be these two olive branches which through the two golden pipes emptied the golden oil out of themselves? And he answered and said unto me, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then said he, These are the, what's it say? Two anointed ones, which do what? Okay, hold your finger right there, because you, you may have missed it, so I don't want you to miss it. Hold your finger right there in Zechariah 4, verse 14. Go to Revelation chapter 11. Watch the connection, okay? Look at verse number 4 of Revelation 11. It says, these are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks before the what? before the God of the earth. Does everybody see the connection between the two passages? If you don't, just raise your hand. I'll go over it again. I don't mind. Do you see it? All right, so let's go back to Zechariah for a moment. Do you see Zechariah? At the end of that verse 14, it says, Then said he, These are the two anointed ones that stand before the Lord of the whole earth. Well, that's interesting. So the two olive trees are the two anointed ones. The two olive trees are the two anointed ones. Hmm. Let me ask you a question. Tell me the name of the angel that was anointed in heaven. Anybody know the, there's only two names of, well, okay, there's only two, what, so the name of the angel that the Bible says was anointed in heaven. Anybody know the name of that angel? Lucifer. 
What did we find that answer? Ezekiel 28. Go with me to Ezekiel 28. I want you to read it. I want you to know the, the title or the type of angel this was. So go to Ezekiel 28. And don't worry, we're going over a lot of verses, but I promise you I'm going to simplify this as best I can. So Ezekiel 28, and I want us to read verse, we started verse uh, 12 for a little context. So Ezekiel 28 verse 12 says, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyre and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Thou stillest up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardis, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, the carbuncle, and gold. The workmanship of thy taverns and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou was created. Thou art the anointed cherub that what? Covereth. So Lucifer is called the anointed covering cherub. You with me? Do you remember that we read in 1 Kings 6.23 and 32 that the cherubs were crafted out of olive trees? You with me? So there's something about the connection between the olive trees, the anointed ones, which have to be the cherubs, the two witnesses, and the candlesticks, and the 1,260 days or years. Okay? There's a connection here. What is that connection? We're going to get there. But let's go a little bit further. Because I want you to see something very, very interesting. Um, we can go to X. You have the handout, so I won't go to every point that I have here. I want to go back to Revelation 11 for a moment. Go to Revelation 11. And so what, what we can say is that for 1,260 years, God's people are persecuted and prosecuted. We know that these two witnesses were prophesied during the same time frame, and these two witnesses somehow are connected with the cherubs that are anointed that stand in the very presence of God. And we know that these olive trees do the same thing that these candlesticks do. Tell me, what are candlesticks for? What is the purpose of candlesticks? Light, right? Light. Make sure you... I'm giving you all these clues. I'm, you want to make sure you write them down. There's a reason why I'm doing it this way, okay? Now, with that being stated, I want you to go with me now to verse number five. And watch carefully. Verse five says, if any man will hurt them, who's the them? All right, so the two witnesses, right? If any man will hurt the two witnesses, if any man comes up against the two witnesses, watch what it says. Fire proceedeth out of their mouth. Now, I've, <laughs> I've, uh, from time to time, I'll get one of these Christian videos that try to explain this prophecy. And what, and what I've seen is that they literally have literal, they believe that literal men will show up and that when they talk, fire comes out of their mouth. Okay, that is a... That is a belief. That is a real idea that people have. My friends, everything we believe has to come from Scripture. Not just one piece, and I'm just going to throw it out there, but we need to lay the foundation so that we can see clearly and have an intelligent explanation of what's transpiring. 
So like, let's just say another idea. The locusts have human heads. Now, I hear people literally say there's going to be locusts with real heads coming and eating people. No, no. That's not what's going to happen. Okay? There's a reason why locusts is used. I have a whole study on locusts, what, is, what it means, how it's applied. So the Bible clearly is symbolic. All right? In the book of Revelation, especially, there are symbols. So those symbols represent something. So what we've seen so far is that these numbers symbolize years. And that these witnesses are connected with a message. Why else would you have a witness? In fact, I'm going to get to near the end, but it's interesting that it says there are two witnesses. It could have said there's one witness. It could have said there are seven witnesses. But the Bible teaches in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let the matter be established. So let me tell you something. There is a reason why somebody tried to kill these witnesses. You heard of the mafia before? You say, if, you, if there's a mafia and the guy's on, the, he's about to get, you know, uh, ratted on, and the mafia knows the guy has information, what do they do to the witness? Yeah, they bye-bye. They get rid of him, right? So this is the same thing. What the Bible is showing us is that there are going to be two witnesses. These two witnesses are going to make, remember I showed you the other day that it is, it is before the second coming of Jesus, the man of sin must be revealed. If he's going to be revealed, there has to be two witnesses, at minimum, because you can't condemn somebody with one witness. You got to have two. So if the man of sin is going to be revealed, these two witnesses have to come up and say, you are the man. You are the man of sin. You follow the idea. Okay, I'm giving you the, the general gist of the story, but let's go a little bit further. If any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this matter, manner be killed. Now, remember I told you the other day also that all the books of the Bible meet in the book of Revelation. So my question is, what stories in the Bible talk about fire destroying God's enemies? Go with me to first, Second Kings chapter 2, chapter 1. Second Kings chapter 1. Stay with me now. Second Kings chapter 1. And with a study like this, you really have to think. There's no jumping around. There's no ecstatic. You have to use your mind. So Second Kings chapter 1, there's a story about a king. And I'm going to read the verses to you. You need to stay with me on this. It says, Then Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. And Ahaziah fell down through a lattice in his upper chamber that was in Samaria and was sick. And he sent messengers and said unto them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover of this disease. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say unto them, Is it not because there is not a god in Israel? that ye go to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 4. Now therefore, thus saith the Lord, thou shalt not come down from the bed, that bed in which thou art gone up, but surely die. And Elijah departed. And when the messengers turned back unto him, he said unto them, Why are ye now turned back? 
And they said unto him, There came a man up to meet us and said unto us, Go, turn again unto the king that sent you, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Is it not because there is not a God in Israel that thou sendest out to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore thou shalt not come down from that bed on which thou art gone up, but shalt surely die. And he said unto them, What manner of man was he which spake or came up to meet you and told you these words? And they answered him, He was a hairy man, <laughs> that's interesting, and girt with a girdle of leather about his loins. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. Notice that he is identified by what he wears. Do you guys see that? The, then the king sent unto him a captain of fifty with his fifty. And he went up to him, and behold, he sat on the top of the hill and spake unto him, Thou man of God, the king hath said, Come down. And Elijah answered and said unto the captain of fifty, If I be a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and thy fifty. And there came down fire from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again also he sent unto him another captain of the fifty with his fifty. And he answered and said unto him, O man of God, thus hath the king said, Come down quickly. And Elijah answered and said unto them, If I be a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and thy fifty. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. And he sent again a captain of third fifty with his fifty. And the third captain of fifty went and came and fell on his knees. Amen. Before Elijah and besought him and said unto him, O man of God, I pray thee, let my life and the life of these fifty thy servants be precious in thy sight. Behold, there came fire down from heaven and burnt up the two captains of the former fifties with their fifties. Therefore, let my life now be precious in thy sight. And the angel of the Lord said unto Elijah, go down with him. Be not afraid of him. And he arose and went down with him unto the king. You guys see the story? When God has a messenger and God wants his message to be proclaimed, and someone comes to fight against that messenger, the Bible says fire came down and consumed. Now, there's a reason why this is important, because what happens is we are laying a foundation to understand Revelation 11. Remember, if any man touches the two witnesses, what happens? Fire comes down. Okay, let's go a little bit further. I think you're doing good so far. Go with me to the book of... Hmm, do I want to do that one? Yeah, we could do that one. Second Samuel, go to Second Samuel. Second Samuel. And there's another passage I'm thinking of. I think it's in the book of Numbers. Do you guys remember when, was it, it was not David by you, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, right? You guys know the story of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram? when they began to rebel against God and they were questioning the leadership of Moses. And you remember how the, the Bible says, with Korodath and Abiram, that the earth opened up and swallowed up these people. And then it says, for those that were left over, fire came down from God out of heaven and destroyed the rest of the rebellion in the camp. Now again, so we have uh, the person of Elijah where someone comes up against spiritual leadership and fire comes and consumes them. We have the person of Moses when they come up against spiritual leadership and fire comes down and consumes them. Everybody follow that? 
So in your notes, make sure you write down, I believe it's the book of Numbers, Korah, Datham, and Abiram, and you'll be able to find that. Well, let's go a little bit further. Is it Numbers chapter 16? All right, so make sure you write that in your notes, Numbers chapter 16. I want to go back to Revelation 11. I don't want to go to Samuel. You, you have the notes there. You can do that in your own time. Go to Revelation 11. I want to go to Revelation 11, not Samuel. Yeah. Now, there's a reason why I'm doing it this way. Normally, you know, sometimes when we are studying or hearing a sermon, we kind of get caught up in what the preacher is saying. I want you to get caught up in this verse-by-verse method of study. I'm showing you how to study right now. So I'm not just studying, but I'm showing you what to do when you study. Okay? So in Revelation 11, there's something else that transpires here that I want you to see. Verse 6 says, These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. Now, because you are already very good Bible students, what Bible story or person do we know that literally went to a king, pointed at the king and said, there will be no rain but according to my word. Who did that? Elijah. You can find that in 1 Kings chapter 17. So Elijah is the prophet that points and says there will be no rain. And there was no rain for how long? Tell me how long it lasted. Three and a half years? Are you guys, you sure? You are 100% correct. You are 100% correct. So for three and a half years, the, pro- the prophet Elijah, you got you to hear what I'm saying to you now, friends. The prophet Elijah walks in and says, there will be no rain, and literally, heavens are shut. But according to my word. When he says my word, though, whose words was he speaking? God's words. God's words. Okay, you guys are doing good. One more quiz. It says, and have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. Tell me, who is the man? You, who, somebody said Moses, huh? That's right. You're right. You're right. So Moses is the one that goes before Pharaoh, and the waters of the Nile become blood, right? And he's the one that called down the plagues from heaven. You guys saw that? All right, so we have in verse 5, we have in verse 5, you guys are doing really good right now. In verse 5, we had that if any man hurts them, fire comes down from heaven. And we have an example of that with Moses. And we have an example of that with Elijah. And then we have if, any, if any, they have the power to shut heaven, that's Elijah, and to call plagues, that's Moses. Are you following so far? But now, my friends, this is where your spiritual super caps have to stay on. These men represent something. This, the man Moses, you're thinking with me right now. This is, this is what I do in my office when no one's in there, walking around. My daughter walks in, Daddy, are you talking to yourself again? <laughs> so this man Moses, um, we know that he did all the Red Sea, part of the Red Sea and all that, but Moses is considered the lawgiver. He's the one that literally went up into the presence of God, 
stayed up there for 40 days and 40 nights with no food, no water. He's literally living off God's presence. And he receives God's Ten Commandment law. And he comes down from the mount to give this to the people. Elijah is something else. If you remember when, when uh, John the Baptist comes on the scene and they call him, what do they call John the Baptist? Yeah, they call him the forerunner. They call him Elias, and Elias means Elijah. They thought, are you Elijah? No. So Elijah is considered the greatest of the prophets. Stay with me. Moses is considered the lawgiver. Elijah is considered the prophets. Nobody's paying attention right now. You paying attention? Okay. Stay with me because what's, what's happening is I'm giving you a, a foundation because many, when I've, when I've taught this in other places, somebody, they'll quote something from someone, then I'll ask them, how did you get that? They won't know how they got that. I'm giving you Bible right now. Okay? So we have an example of Moses and Elijah in verse 5, Moses and Elijah in verse 6, and I'm telling you that these men are a symbol of God's law and his prophets. In fact, let me help a little bit. Go to the book of Isaiah, the 8th chapter. We're looking at verse number 20. Isaiah, the 8th chapter, verse 20. Isaiah, the 8th chapter, verse 20, when you have it, Just say amen. Amen. Verse 20 says, to the law and to the what? Testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no what? Y'all not paying attention. Did you pay attention to that? To the law and to the testimony. The law God's Ten Commandment Law, the testimony, in fact, before I get too excited, I was about to get excited. I need to be a little calmer. I want to go somewhere else with you. I want you to see this. Go with me to, no. Hmm. Let me go back here before I go there. All right. Remember, there are How many witnesses, my friends? Two. The two witnesses are the two olive trees, which essentially are the two anointed ones, which stand before the God of the whole earth. They are like candlesticks. So candlesticks are for light. The anointed ones are full of the Holy Ghost, of course, and the two witnesses are are interrelated. These are now prophesying during the 1,260 years. Uh, What is the oldest in the Bible? Who is the oldest man that ever died? Methuselah. Okay, Methuselah. He lived how long? 969. So let's just, first and foremost, we need to eliminate that this is actually human beings. Everybody follow that? Because if they live for 1,260 years, they can't be human. Are you following? That means these, are, these represent something else. They are symbols of something else, okay? Um, 
Watch this. Watch this. I want you to go with me to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy uh, 5, verse 4 and 5. Yes, okay, yes. And this is about Moses, right? Moses in the presence of God. Deuteronomy 5, verses 4. Actually, start at verse 1. Deuteronomy 5, verses 1 through 5. It says, And Moses called all Israel and said unto them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your ears this day, that ye may learn them and keep and, what's it say? Do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. The Lord made not his covenant with our fathers, but with us, even us, who are all of us here alive this day. The Lord talked with you face to face in the mount on the midst of the fire. I stood between the Lord and you at that time to show you, what's it say? The word of the Lord. So what is he, what is he saying when he says the word of the Lord? What did he bring down from the mount? The commandment. So the law and God's commandment is equated with his 100. You're doing really good right now. Doing really good. I want to show you something else. Go to Exodus now. Exodus, the 31st chapter. Exodus 31. I want you to look at verse 17 and 18. Watch what the Bible says. It says, it is a sign, speaking about the Sabbath, between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was, what's it say, my friends? Refreshed. And he gave unto Moses when he had made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai two tables of, what's it say? Testimony, tables of stone, Written with what? Stay with me, all right? So two tables of testimony, two tables of stone, written with the finger of God. Exodus 25. Exodus 25. Yes, I was going to see if I get a little bit of context. So Exodus 25, look at verse 16, okay? What does it say? And thou shalt put into the ark the testimony which I shall give thee. So where does the testimony go? Inside the ark. I just want you to get that in your mind. The testimony, God's word, goes inside the ark. All right? Now go with me to, oh, we can go to verse uh, 20, verse, actually just read verse 17. And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold, two cubits, uh, two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. And thou shalt make, how many, my friends? Two cherubim of gold of beaten work shalt thou make them in the two ends of the mercy seat. Very good. And make one cherub on the one end and the other cherub on the other end 
even of the mercy seat shall thou make the cherubim of the two ends thereof. All right, so what we have is inside the ark is what? Testimonies, God's word. And who's watching over this? Two cherubs. Okay, go with me now to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 31. Deuteronomy 31. We're going to read verse 24 and 25 and 26. Hmm. Are you ready? We have it to say amen? Okay, watch. And, it's, and it came to pass when Moses had made an end of writing. Who's writing it? Moses. So Moses had made an end of writing the words of this law in a book until they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites, which bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, saying, take this book of the law and put it in the, what's it say, my friends? The side of the ark of the covenant of the Lord, that it may be there for a, what's it say? For a what? For a witness against you. Interesting. Remember now, God's Ten Commandment law goes inside the ark, but the law that Moses wrote with his hands goes on the side of the ark. Are you with me? There's a difference. What God wrote with his own hands, his word, he writes himself and puts inside the ark under the protection of the two cherubims. And he takes the, the words of Moses, we call it the uh, law and the prophets. The prophets is on the side. The law is underneath. The law is the foundation of the throne. The prophets are on the side. Okay? Are you following? So how many is that? If it's the law and the prophets, is that two witnesses? Are you with me, my friends? Okay, stay with me. Stay with me. So there are two witnesses. The law and the prophets. You can summarize it by saying, it is the word of God. God. Can we summarize it that way? We can say it's the Old and New Testament now, safely. Some of us want to quote things, but we don't know how we get there. We don't show our work. Hmm? We got to show our work. So as the law and the prophets, these are the two witnesses that are prophesying. How are they prophesying? In sackcloth. So they are under duress. They are under persecution. They are under prosecution. Now, I will go to the screen. I think I've given you enough to go to the screen now. Because on the screen is a lot of history. So stay with me. I will move as swiftly and slowly as possible. Rebellion is as the sin of, what's it say, my friends? Tell me, I want to tell you something. You don't have to have a special Ouija board. You don't have to call up the dead. You don't have to do any of that to practice witchcraft. All you have to do is rebel against the word of God. And what happens when one begins to rebel against the word of God, the mind comes under subjection of another power. And this is what happened with uh, Saul. One that was chosen by God, one that was ordered by God, and Saul literally rejects the prophet. 
And in rejecting the prophet, now his mind is subject to another spirit. So it's interesting. I, and I, I was talking to the Lord about it today because I, I didn't understand what was transpiring. And I don't know what's caused whatever's happening to come at me the way it was. But what I begin to prayerfully consider is that if you and I reject instruction from the Most High, then it will be easy for us to turn on each other. Now, it, it, is, a strange, it is a strange and fascinating thing. Like, it, you can have fellowship. You can do ministry together. You can do church together. You can sing songs together. And you can have all this family. And then, my friends, if you don't continue in God's word, it's going to be messed up for you. It's going to be messed up for me. The word of God has to be our anchor. It has to be our, our protection. So if you heard something like, let's just say the Sabbath is the seventh day, you can't walk away from that now. That's, you know, it's here. Like, you can't ignore it. To walk away from the word would now put you in a position to say, I know better than God. Now, when you do that, you may feel like it's okay. And I'm speaking in that Sabbath. You can talk about what you eat, how you dress, where you go. But if God is speaking to your mind and you know it's, that it's true, then you need to walk in the light while there still is light. Because light can turn to darkness. I'll put this quote up here. It says, for thousands of years, Satan has been experimenting on the properties of the human mind, and he has come to know it well. By his subtle workings in these last days, he is linking the human mind with his own, imbuing it with his thoughts. And he is doing this work in so deceptive a manner that those who accept his guidance know not that they are being led by him at his will. The great deceiver hopes so to confuse the minds of men and women that none but his voice will be heard. In other words, when Satan is talking, people are going to think Jesus is talking. And when Jesus is talking, folks are going to think that is Satan talking. That is a profound statement. Now, I put that there, not that you have to believe that, but I believe it's evident and true. I'm going to show you something else, and I hoping that the sound works. Is the sound, the sound ready to roll on this, my friend? Let's do this. No. I did. Let's try again. All right. We're just going to do it the old-fashioned way. Yeah, just give me this, my friend. The blue one? A news release announcing that in the very near future, Krem has been preparing the way for... All right, before we do this, I just want you to, to know something. When I first came across this video, um, it actually bothered me greatly. And when I, when I first saw it, I said, man, this is being fulfilled. Now I'm like, it's really being fulfilled. See? So watch carefully. I want you to just hear what it will, it will work. Which part? Okay, so let me plug it back in. Let's go with the original plan. It sounds like it will work. <laughs> 
Foreign lecturer Benjamin Krem has been preparing the way for the biggest event in history, the emergence of Maitreya the World Teacher and his group, the Masters of Wisdom. Millions of people have heard his information and wait expectantly for this momentous event. On the 12th of December 2008, Share International Foundation distributed a news release announcing that in the very near future, a large bright star would appear in the sky, visible throughout the planet night and day, a sign of Maitreya's imminent open emergence. The star, the herald of Maitreya, seen throughout the world, has done its work. At his latest public lecture at Friends House, Euston Road, London, on the 14th of January 2010, Benjamin Krem made the following announcement. Maitreya recently gave his first interview in America. The first of many such interviews. He followed in Japan and Europe and so on. The master of all the masters. For the first time in human history, himself physically came on a well-known television program in a major um, network in the United States, but undeclared as Maitreya, just as one of us. And he gave that interview. It would be watched probably by many millions. And that's the first time such an event has ever happened. Can you imagine what it means? For the first time in human history, the world teacher not only can come himself, but can speak to the world, to the linked television channels of the world, and address all humanity. His name is Maitreya, but he will not use that name until enough people are responding to him and what is called the Day of Declaration is, has arrived. Then Maitreya will come before the world on the Day of Declaration and acknowledge his true status. We can only afford one world. That world has to be one in fact and in deed and at peace. And the only way to get peace is to create justice. So the only way to get justice is to have trust. How do you get trust? There will never be justice if there's no trust. So the only way to create trust is to share the resources of the world. This is the year of the tiger. And the year of the tiger, according to Maitreya, is a year in which great things take place. Great big things take place. The tiger brings about <coughs> big change. And humanity will wake up in this year and from now on and will demand of its governments changes which up till now it thought it would never get. And the world will undergo quickly a change set in motion 
in this coming year by humanity itself. All right, so the ominous music, I didn't do that. Um, as I am put that there, what's, what's the thought that comes to your mind? Sounds weird, right? It seems to me that when I first saw the video, I said, huh, that's interesting. But then as the years gone by, what's happening? The people of the world are demanding of his government changes, is it not? There's uprisings happening. Now, the book of Revelation, chapter 11, gives us an understanding of why these uprisings are happening. So what I did was I went back through a little bit of history. The French Revolution is a microcosm of end-time events, and history repeats itself. So if you give me 15 minutes, I'll go as far as I will, and then I'll let you go. Is that okay? Do I have your permission? If I have your permission, raise your right hand. All right. Very good. So here you have some pictures of the French Revolution, and I'm going to go through a little bit of history, but you'll understand why I'm putting this here. So there were several reasons for the French Revolution. The first one is that Christians were killed. Believers were killed. Now, the Bible says that you are the salt of the earth. The believer is the salt of the earth, right? So during the French Revolution... Christians were killed. Now, that, that's, that other slide is going to come back, so don't worry. It says, since the Huguenots of France were in large part artisans, craftsmen, and professional people, they were usually well received in the countries to which they fled for refuge. When religious discrimination or overt persecution caused them to leave France, most of them were initially, most of them went initially to Germany, the Netherlands, and England, although some found their way eventually to places as remote as South Africa. Considerable numbers of Huguenots migrated to British North America, especially to the Carolinas, so forth and so on. And then it talks about the exodus of the Huguenots. Now, again, I'm going to tell you who the Huguenots are in a moment. The exodus of the Huguenots from France created a, what's it say, my friends? A brain drain. See, the Christians are the salt of the earth, all right? So as the Huguenots had occupied important places in society from which the kingdom could not fully recover, the French crown's refusal to allow non-Catholics to settle in France may help to explain that colony's slow rate of population growth compared to that of neighboring British colonies. So I'm going to show you a map here. See this map? This map is a map of all the Protestant churches in France. Uh, the green dots are small Protestant churches, and the big orange dots are churches where there are several Protestant leaders. Notice the next map. When persecution started, Christians fled. So you have 4,000 go to Cape of Good Hope, 22,000 go to Switzerland, 25 to 30,000 go to Germany, 50 to 60,000 people go to the Dutch Republic, 40 to 50,000 go to England. So you have Christians, the salt, running hiding for their life. Are you with me so far? Okay. There's a reason why I'm showing this. Another reason for the French Revolution, these three. France was an absolute monarchy with a weak monarch. In other words, their leadership was not strong. And because the leadership's not strong, you can't control the masses without a good leadership. They were having financial difficulties. Remember, the thing that have been is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done. There's nothing new under the sun. 
Number three, France troops were sent to supply the aid of American revolutionaries. In other words, the French sent their soldiers to America to help the Americans fight uh, for their independence. All right? Now, why are these reasons why the French monarchy or the French Revolution happens? You don't have a lot of money, you don't have good leadership, and your armies spread abroad. And then the Christians are being persecuted, so they're all fleeing. Okay? So the conditions of the times, watch carefully. The conditions of the times, there were taxes were increased. The rent cost was increased. There were inadequate methods of agriculture. Now everything I read here is exactly what's happening right now. Are you following? The prices of goods rose quicker than wages. There was a 22% wage increase and a 62% cost of living increase. The monarchy was more of a dictatorship and the estate general meeting um, hadn't happened since 1614. And lastly, France was absolutely bankrupt by 1789. So what does that mean? So the leadership, the, the rich folks, the nobles, that's the word I was looking for, the nobles had not constituted a meeting because the nobles would, and the, 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 the religious leaders would, would gather every so often to pass laws, but they had not met since 1614. So you know if they had not met, that means leadership was out of control, people were doing whatever they wanted to do. Here is what we call a little bit of propaganda. You see this? This is a picture of nobles on the back of the peasant. Here you have a picture of a noble with some soldiers standing on top of a peasant. These pictures were drawn and written to incite the discomfort of the people to cause an uprising amongst the people. This is history. The agriculture and, climat and the climatic problems of the 1770s and 1780s led to an important increase in what? That's interesting. The agriculture and climatic problems? I'm reading from a history book, my friend. This is not, this is not me making this up. It says, in some cities in the North, historians have estimated the poor as reaching upwards of 20% of the urban population. Displacement and criminality, mainly theft, also increased, and the growth of the groups of mendicants and bandits became a problem. Although nobles, what's that French word there, my friends? Very, very good, thank you. And wealthy landlords saw their revenues affected by the Depression. The hardest hit in this period were the working class and the peasants. While their tax burden to the state had generally decreased in this period, feudal and, what's that other word? Signoral dues had increased. So here we have it. Notice these other two that were added here. The Age of Enlightenment was a reason for the uprising because now what do you have? You have a different philosophy. The people's minds have been affected. Okay? I'm giving you this because history repeats itself. Okay? The population divided in three estates. Again, I told you, you have the Clergy was the top, the nobles were the second, and you had the average peasants as the underneath. Now let me tell you the percentages. So you had the clergy as the top 1%, you had the nobles as the top 2%, and 97% of the population were the common man. Anybody paying attention? So you had, now when they met for the assembly, 
every, whether it be the clergy, whether it be the nobles, or whether it be the masses, each group only had one vote. Are you following? So what, who do you think um, voted together most of the time? The clergy and the nobles. The clergy and the nobles would vote together often as they would. And this would make the lower class individuals upset. And in the age of enlightenment, this was not okay. Okay? Watch. Let me see if I can. I'm going to go through a couple of events. I only got a few more minutes left because I want to get to some other stuff. Uh, the estate general met at Versailles on May 5th, 1789. The nobility argued that the three estates meet separately and vote as individual bodies. So the nobles wanted to do the same old thing. On June 10, 1789, the third estate broke the stalemate, meaning that the third estate said, no way, we're going to do our own thing. On June 17, 1789, the third estate began the French Revolution by declaring itself a national assembly. Okay? June 20th, 1789, national assembly members take tennis court oath, pledging to create a new constitution. On June 27, Louis ordered the clergy and nobility to join the third estate. In August 1788, watch this, 50% of a peasant or a urban worker's income went towards the purchase of, what's it say, my friends? Of bread. Can you imagine that? By July 1789, this figure had risen to 80%. We're talking about an economic crisis. We're talking about inflation. Are you seeing that? On July 14th, between eight and 900 Parisians, mostly women, mostly what? Pay attention. Gathered in front of the medieval fortress, the Bastille. They were looking for weapons and gunpowder. They stormed the prison. 98 were killed and 73 wounded. Now, this is when they, were run, this is when they literally began to chop people's heads off and put them on, on sticks and run around. Okay? This is very strange times. On October 5th, 1789, several hundred Parisian men and women March the 12 miles to Versailles in order to protest the lack of bread to Louis and the National Assembly. 20,000 Paris guards loyal to the revolution set out to join the mob and gather in Versailles. Uh, let's go a little bit faster. So I'm going to give you a little bit of facts. You see this? I thought this was interesting. Initially, when you look at the, the way it's rounded out, you're like, oh, the Ten Commandments. N not quite. You see that at the top? Yeah, the decoration, but at the top, there's a triangle. <laughs> you see that? This is the Declaration of the Rights of Men. This is what they put together to replace the idea of a Ten Commandment law. Okay? It's a very interesting time. Well, let's go a little bit further. I'm clicking that like it's something. On August 10, 1792, enraged Parisian men and women attacked the king's palace and killed several hundred Swiss guards. Louis and Marie Antoinette were forced to flee to Torlis and took refuge in the legislative assembly itself. So that it's like running into the, the um, they don't call it the White House, not the White House, but the other place where the co Congress meets. So they run in there for protection. Strange times. Strange times. On September 21st and 22nd, 1792, the monarchy was officially abolished. What was officially abolished, my friends? The monarchy was officially abolished and a republic established. The 22nd of September, 1792, was, was now known as day one of year one. Interesting. 
In December, Louis XVI was placed on trial for violating the liberty of his subjects, and on January 21st, 1793, Louis was executed like an ordinary criminal. All right, so let me pass some. Oh, no, let me not pass this. First, let me just say this to you. During this time frame, you're talking about any type of suspicion. If you, were, if you seem like you were against the rebellion, they would take you prisoner right away. They would lock you up. They would kill you. If you were Christians, the true Christians were had left France. They were out. Most of them were gone. So all that was left um, were the, the Catholic Church, okay? That, that was what essentially was left. So this rebellion, and, and I'll show you in a minute. Let me not go any further yet. June 24, Constitution of 1793 is established. There's a Constitution established. Seven, September 29, Rospierre Maxim, Max, it should say Maximilian, implements ceiling on prices. He's trying to do price control because there's inflation. July 27, 1794, Rospierre is overthrown. December 24, uh, he is, the, the maximum is repealed and prices skyrocket. You know how we always talk about the fiscal cliff? You guys know about that in the United States? Pay attention, my friends. History is simply repeating itself right now. Watch this. Oh, I need to pass this. Oh, oh, oh. let me not pass this. <laughs> Look at this. It says, in the weeks after the execution of the king, the internal and external wars in France continued to grow. Prussian and Austrian forces pushed into the French countryside, and one noted French general even defected to the opposition. Unable to assemble an army out of the disgruntled and protesting peasants, the Girardin-led national convention started to panic. In an effort to restore peace and order, the convention created the committee of, what's it say, my friends? Public safety on April 6, 1793, for what purpose? to maintain order within France and protect the country from what? Sounds like this. Does it sound like that? That sounds like homeland security. To stop threats from without and threats from within. They instituted a means of watching everybody. Stay with me. The Committee of Public Safety assumed leadership in April 1793 as a branch of the National Convention itself. The Committee of Public Safety had broad powers, which included the organization of the nation's defenses, all foreign policy, and the supervision of, what's it say, my friends? Ah, the committee also ordered arrests and trials of counter-revolutionaries and imposed government authority across the nation. Now, as this is all going on, right? So as this is going on, the question would be, who did it like who, who are the people that that poke the bear like this all right so because of time i'm going to pass some of this oh no no i got to put this up look at this this is the in the, uh, the declarations of the of, of of the rights of men first article the french people acknowledge the existence of the what's it say supreme being and the what Immortality of the soul. Well, that's interesting. Article 2. It acknowledges that the worship of the most worthy of the supreme being is the practice of the duties of men. My brain says, wait a second. What are you talking about? Wasn't the French Revolution about atheists? So who is the supreme being? 
This is in the Declaration of the Rights of Men. So who's putting this together? Who's writing this? For the sake of time, let me show you this. I have a whole presentation. When I, you know, I did this uh, presentation at a church in upstate New York. This is when a woman just came to me afterwards and says, I'm, I'm, she says, I'm fulfilling prophecy. That's what she, remember I told you that the other night? This is the presentation I did, but it was two hours long, so you don't have that much time. She came to me and said, you're fulfilling the wrong side. I'm on the wrong side. I said, who are you, what are you talking about? She says, I come and visit the church and just make sure everybody stays in line in the church. I said, what? Did? And she's whispering. <laughs> let, me, let me show you this. Let me show you this. Because I want to sh- get to who's behind this, okay? Who's behind this? So there's this great, oh, man. Let's do this. So here, the fear of God was said to be so far from the beginning of wisdom that it was beginning of folly. All worship was prohibited. Now, that's interesting because they said they worshiped the supreme being, right? Okay, all worship was prohibited except for, the li- for that of liberty and country. Stay with me, brothers and sisters. The golden silver plates of the church were seized and de- desecrated. The churches were closed. The bells were broken and cast into the cannon. The Bible was publicly burned. The Bible was publicly burned. The sacramental vessels were paraded through the streets on an ass in token of contempt. A week of 10 days instead of seven was established and death was declared in a cons. What's that word? conspicuous letters posted over burial places to be an eternal sleep. Now watch this. By the crowning blas- but the crowning blasphemy, if these orgies of hell admit of degrees, remain to be performed by the comedian Monville. What was he? Be careful of these comedians, man. They're powerful. The comedian Monville, who... As a priest of, what's it say, my friends? A priest of Illuminism? Well, I found that interesting language to use. God, if you exist, bless you, avenge your injured name. I bid you defiance. You remain silent. You dare not launch your thunders. Who after this will believe in your existence? This is language used during the French Revolution. But wait. This is from a book called uh, Daniel Revelation Commentary, historical book there. But this comes from a book called The Great Controversy. It says, with blasphemous boldness, almost beyond belief, one of the priests of the, what's it say, my friends? Of the New Order. The other one, the historical book said, the priest of Illuminism. This one said, the priest of a New Order. God, if you exist, avenge your injured name, I bid you defiance, you remain silent, you dare not launch your thunders. Who after this will believe in your existence? The actual quote comes from the Credo History, Volume 11, page 309. So I find it interesting, the historical references about this power that's coming. It is a power that it says illuministic in nature, and it's a new order. Okay? And this new order is coming as the 1260 years is coming to an end. But let's go a little bit further. I'm going to pass some of this. Oh, no, 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 (laughs) no, no, I can't do it. It, There's a reason why. And and maybe I'll just tell you the story, and then you, you, you can do your own homework. So they had this woman who used to be a prostitute, and they brought this woman and put her on this, naked. And they began to worship her, and they began to call her the goddess of reason. 
They put a torch in their hand. They put a torch in their hand. In America, it was sipped over to us with the Statue of Liberty. They clothed her and sent it to us. Again, this comes from the French Revolution because it's Lady Liberty. It's the goddess of reason. But let me show you something else. I thought this was interesting. This is from a historical book. It says, in Notre Dame, which was desecrated and been named the Temple of Reason. Do you know that there's actually a Temple of Understanding at the United Nations? What I'm sharing with you is that which has been is that which shall be. Remember, the beast comes out of a bottomless pit, out of chaos. So there's this French Revolution. There's this chaos that's happening. Who's behind the chaos? Let's go a little bit further. Let 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 me jump down. Let me show you this. Nope, past that. See this? You see these, these names? Some of you may be able to relate to some of these names. This is Rousseau, Voltaire, Diderot, Descartes, Locke, John Locke, you guys, Edmund Burke, Immanuel Kant, Jefferson, David Hume, Adam Smith. You guys know what these guys have in common? These are atheist, agnostic, unbelievers. These persons are the basis for our humanities and education. Now, why am I bringing this to you? And am I saying don't go to school? Please don't quote me like that. That's not what I said. Don't walk out of here and say, bro, I'm going to show you something. Look at this. No, pass that. This is from a book called the Britannica, Encyclopedia Britannica. Anybody knows about that, about that book? All right. So is that a conspiracy book or a resource book? Good resource book. It's a good resource book, right? So this is not a conspiracy theory. Illuminati, a short-lived movement founded as a secret society in 1776 in Bavaria by Adam Westhop, professor of canon law at the University of Ingolstadt and a former Jesuit. Its aim, this is in the Britannica, its aim, what's its aim? Was to do what? Replace what? Christianity by a religion of what? Mm. Its aim, its purpose was to replace Christianity with a religion of reason? Remember, that's what I'm saying. Look, this book right here, your reason must bow to what inspiration says. Your safety is in following what the Bible says. There's a whole order designed to replace Christianity. Let me, let me, wait, 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 no, that's the same thing. I'm going to show you this. Sound is on. Hello, Earth. I'm Alec Baldwin, TV star. You know, they say TV will rot your brain. (laughs) That's absurd. TV only softens the brain like a ripe banana to take it all the way. We've created Hulu. Hulu beams TV directly to your portable computing devices, giving you more of the cerebral gelatinizing shows you want anytime, anywhere, for free. I only act out because I want you alone. Mushy mush. And the best part is there's nothing you can do to stop it. I mean, what are you going to do, turn off your TV and your computer? <laughs> Once your brains are reduced to a cottage cheese like mush, we'll scoop them out with a melon baller and gobble them right on up. Oops. I think I'm drooling a little. 
Because we're aliens. And that's how we roll. Hulu, an evil plot to destroy the world. Enjoy. Was that it, naturally to your human flesh? That was funny, yeah? Comedian. Making fun of what they just told you they're going to do intentionally. You guys see that? I saw that. I was like, whoa, you guys are bold. I want to turn your brain into a little marshmallow, he said. Pile of mush. Look at this. This is from a book called The New Freedom, page 24, 1961. This is Woodrow Wilson. Brothers and sisters, I'm this guy right here was, in, was responsible for the setting up of the Central Bank of the United States of America. Some of the biggest men in the United States in the field of commerce and manufacture are afraid of something. What are they afraid of? They know that there is a power so organized, so subtle, so watchful, so interlocked, so complete, so pervasive, that they had better not speak above their breath when they speak in condemnation of it. This is the president. Why is he talking like that? Let me show you some, someone else. This is a man named Winston Churchill. Anybody know who he is? This is from the book, or an article, or a book called The Fourth Reich of the Rich by Des Griffin, page 92. From the days of Spartacus Westhop, now Spartacus Westhop is Adam Westhop, the guy that we said was the Illuminist, right? To the, those of Karl Marx, to those of Trotsky, Bellacoon, Rosa Luxemburg, and Emma Goldman, this worldwide conspiracy, well, that's interesting, has been steadily growing. The conspiracy played a definite recognizable role in the tragedy of what? So there was an organized power that caused the chaos in the French Revolution. And he's identifying it. He's saying that there is a power like this. It's from those days. And what, watch what else it says. It has been the mainspring of every subversive movement during the 19th century. And now at last, this band of extraordinary personalities from the underworld of the great cities of Europe and America have gripped the Russian people by the hair of their heads and become the pra practically the undisputed masters of that enormous empire. And he's, talk he's talking about there was an uprising in Russia and uh, he's saying it was organized by the same people, the same organization that caused the French Revolution. This is, this is not a conspiracy theory. These are recognized political powers that are speaking these things. Now watch. You'll learn about this, this writer in the next couple of days. But this is from the book Education 228. Watch this. It says, at the same time, anarchy is sweeping, seeking to sweep away all law. Not only divine, but human. The centralizing of wealth and power. Do you see the centralizing of wealth and power taking place right now? Brothers and sisters, I get, I get um, newsletters from organizations about money. And they tell me where the money's being moved to, or, or that they don't tell me where. They say, who is about to move it? Large amounts of money are about to move very soon with intent. You remember the financial crisis in 2008, seven? That was intentional. There, there was people that literally made millions and millions and millions of dollars while everybody suffered. So watch, at the same time, Anarchy is seeking to sweep away all law, not only divine but human. The centralizing of wealth and power, the vast combinations for the enriching of the few at the expense of the many, 
the combinations of the poorer classes for the defense of their interests and claims that's happening. The spirit of unrest, of riot and bloodshed, the worldwide dissemination of the same teaching that led to the French Revolution are all tending to involve, what's it say, my friends? The whole world in a struggle similar to that which convulsed France. Now, for a moment, because you are thinkers, I want to show you something. And then we're going to bring this to a close. Revelation chapter 11, and I'm going to do a comparison between Revelation 11 and Revelation 17. I want you to see something. And again, some of this information, you have to go back and study yourself. All you got to do is go on YouTube, type in French Revolution. They have whole documentaries if you, haven't, if you don't know about the history. Go and just look at them. They're quite interesting. But Revelation 11 said something that I want you to pay attention to. In verse number 7, it says, And when they have finished their testimony, or are finishing their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. Now, Sodom is a place where licentiousness and sodomy and all sorts of things were taking place. And Egypt is where there's an unbelief in the true God. Okay? This is identifying France where also our Lord was crucified. Our Lord, meaning the word, was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their bodies to be put in graves. Now, what I want you to observe is, is anybody riding on top of the beast that comes out of the bottomless pit? Is the beast, does the beast just come up in this passage? Is anybody on the beast? There's nobody on the beast. Now, let me tell you something. The devil seeks to learn from his mistakes. Okay? So there's nobody riding the beast. The beast comes up, and it literally kills Catholics. It kills anybody who is in its way and establishes this atheistic, communistic, socialistic structure. But there's something new about this in Revelation 17. Notice this. In Revelation 17... Look at this. And I want us to start reading at verse uh, 3. Let's start reading at verse 3. Oh, yes. There's so much to read. Verse 3 says, So he carried me away in the wilderness, away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast. Who's sitting on the beast? A woman. Full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked in gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of fornication. And upon her head, forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration or wonder. And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which hath seven heads and ten horns. I'm going to stop at verse 8. The beast that thou sawest was and is not, and shall ascend, where, my friends? Out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. 
And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life of the foundation of book of life from the foundation of the world when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. So here's the, here's just a, a visual difference. There's a beast that comes out of the bottomless pit in Revelation 11, and nobody rides that beast. That beast got out of control. Do you realize that during the French Revolution, when the laws were removed, that within three and a half years, they passed a law to say God does exist? Like, they couldn't, they couldn't let it go too long. They had to pass a law and say, this chaos must stop. So they passed a law real fast. Because when God is removed, France is the one nation that has had the experiment that there is no God. They're the one nation that's literally said, we do not believe in God, and then all chaos is, no word, chaos, 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 chaos. And then they say, oh, no, this is a bad idea. <laughs> Let's pass the law. God does exist. Three and a half years, it went on. They're the one nation that did that. So in the last days, instead of it being localized in France, that experience is going to be glo- global and worldwide, but this time, a church rise to beasts. You remember a woman rides the beast? The church rides the beast. Because what it, when you ride a horse, what do you try to do? You try to control it. You're, you're trying, you, saw that it, you saw the effect that it had. You're like, man, this, that was a great idea. But this time, I can't remove God altogether, so let me add God to it. Let me add the church to it. And the church is going to contr- try to control the beast, but the Bible says it's not going to work. My challenge to you tonight is, because I've given you a lot of information, you've been very patient, you've given me prophetic time, I appreciate that. My challenge to you tonight is very simple. You see this book? More time here. More time in study. More time in prayer. When truth is presented to you, you see it, buy the truth, and sell it not. If it's uncomfortable, it's okay. Because at the end of the day, it's the word of God that sanctifies us. It's the word of God that's going to keep us. Our friends are not going to keep us. Man, it's just so crazy, man. Our friends are not going to keep us. Jesus had 12 disciples, and when the crisis hit, because they did not trust in that word, what did the friends do? They all fled. The word of God must be our anchor. It must be our anchor. I've showed you tonight what's happened in the past. It's going to happen very soon. It's happening. It's it's almost like it's it's just bubbling up. The spiritual entities are connecting the world powers, everybody's getting together. Your safety is in the word. Keep them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. More time in the word, my friends. Shut your distractions off. More time with Jesus. How many will commit to that? You'll commit to that? Praise God. Let's go to our knees. Let's talk to Jesus.
Our Father in heaven, your word is good. It's true. Despite how I feel, despite the pressures that present themselves, Lord, your word is true. Let every man be a liar, even myself, Lord. Father, we can see the reality of what it is when your word is removed from a nation, from a people, where men and women forget God, and they push God aside, and chaos ensues. And then man, in his own wisdom, seeks to create an order, but we know that order will not last. Iron and clay won't last. So, Father, we are on our knees. We are bowing our heads, acknowledging, Lord, that your word is supreme, that it is the ultimate authority, and that we cannot live without it. Please help us, Father. Please help our unbelief, for it is so present even as I speak. Help us to trust you for our salvation. Help us to trust you when all else fails. Please, Lord. I pray a special prayer for all those who are hearing this. I pray that you give them a passion to study their Bibles. I pray that you give them a love for truth. Lord, we're not looking for secret orders. We're looking for Jesus. We're not looking for more financial crisis. We're looking for Jesus. Please show us the man that we may be changed from the inside out. We pray this not because we are worthy, but we pray this in the name of Jesus, for he is worthy. And we claim the merits of his holy and most precious blood. Amen.